Well, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started in our study here this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather on this Lord's Day and um, gather around your word. We pray, Father, that as we begin our study of the book of Revelation, that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that the Spirit would guide us in our study of your word, and we commit all these things to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can all turn with me in your Bibles to a Revelation chapter 1. We've made it all the way to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And uh, it's interesting when you uh, study, when you tell someone you're going to be reading the book of Revelation or studying the book of Revelation, um, you get some different reactions. Some people, you get the impression when you tell them that they are thinking, well, good luck to you. You'll, you'll, you'll need a lot of help in studying the book of Revelation. Other people are, are very eager to, to dig into the book of Revelation. One time when I was leading a study at the, the men's uh, shelter in Lowell, I said, what do you want to study? And one of the men said, Revelation. And the other said, yes, Revelation. And we, uh, we studied the book of Revelation, and we were, we were blessed because Revelation is the one book that promises a blessing to those who read the word aloud, to hear the word, and those who keep the word who obey God's word. It promises us a blessing because revelation, when you look at the root word of revelation, um, it comes from the Greek word apocalypse or apocalypsis. And that means an unveiling, a revealing. And what is it revealing when we study this book? It's a revealing of the glory and power of our Lord Jesus Christ and a revealing of his coming and power when he comes to judge the earth and to set up his kingdom. You think about the book of Revelation, and it really is uh, the perfect bookend to Genesis. And when you look at the book of Genesis, we see the creation of the world, God creating the world. In the book of Revelation, we see the destruction of this earth and heaven as we know it, and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. In the book of Genesis, we see sin and the curse and death entering into the world. And in Revelation, we see the manifestation of the removal of sin and the curse and death from this world. In, in Genesis, we see the denial of people to the, of access to the tree of life. In Revelation, that access is once again restored uh, to the tree of life. We see here in the book of um, Revelation it is a book that is written by, many scholars say it's, and I agree, it's, it's written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and here the book of Revelation. And the theme is, um, it's the glory and victory of Christ the Lamb. And when we look at the, the Gospel, when we look at the book of Revelation, we're looking at it with a futuristic view. I know there's a lot of different views on the book of Revelation, but we take a literal view. We take a, a view where it's in the future. Um, I know there's, a, and when we get to eschatology, we need to come humbly before God. I know there's some different interpretations and views on different things in Revelation, but we come before God 
asking his spirit to guide us as we look to his word. And um, John was the author. It, the book was written around A.D. 94, 96. And John, by this time, he's a, a much older man. He's probably in his late 80s, early 90s. And he's in prison on the island of Patmos. Uh, Patmos is a little island um, in the Aegean Sea in the northern part of the Mediterranean. And it's between Asia Minor and Greece. And he was there. He was imprisoned. And it says he was imprisoned on account of the word of God, <clears throat> excuse me, and on account of his testimony for Jesus. So he was in prison there. And here he is, an older man, and he, it's not a, a cush retirement community he's in. It's a very harsh environment. He's probably living there and sleeping possibly on the ground, maybe sleeping on a, a stone slab. Very, very harsh environment that um, <clears throat> John is encountering at this time. I want to look at um, Revelation chapter 1 for a moment here because usually when you look at a lot of the books of the Bible, the first chapter is really foundational for the rest of the book. So let's look at um, the first few verses here, <clears throat> excuse me, in Revelation chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. It's interesting here where God is giving a revelation to Jesus Christ about what's going to transpire with him coming to the earth in power. And Jesus, in turn, is giving the message to the angel, and the angel gives the message to John, who then in turn gives the message to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and ultimately we receive the message from Holy Writ that has been handed down to us. So interesting to see how the book of Revelation is handed down to us. And it says here in verse two, or verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We are promised that blessing by reading this book. And then it says the time is near. And we may think to ourselves, well, it's been a long time since the, the first coming of Jesus Christ around 2,000 years ago as we celebrate his birth in the month of December. But we have to remember that 1,000 years is as one day, and one day is as 1,000 years. And we have to admit that we are closer now than we've ever been before. And I believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he can come any time. I believe he can come during our service here today. And we need to be watching and ready for the time is near. Verse 4, uh, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits. Many times interpreters uh, look at the seven spirits and think that to be the Holy Spirit. Um, who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here we see um, a glimpse of the gospel. It says here in verse 5, to him who loves us. 
and he loved us so much, Jesus shed his blood for us. And he is the firstborn of the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. We get a, a little glimpse of the gospel here in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he has made us a kingdom and priest to his God, and his dominion is forever. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. And it says that the, the people on the earth will wail on account of his coming um, when he comes again. And if you look at um, Zechariah chapter 12, it speaks of the, the Jewish people wailing on account of him whom they have pierced. But the promise I see in Zechariah chapter 12 is that many at that time, when they see Jesus coming again, God will give them a spirit of mourning and repentance. And I believe faith. I believe in Zechariah says that there will be a remnant of the Jewish people when they come and wail. On, they, they will see him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn and they will repent of their sins. And I believe that there will be a remnant of the Jewish people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ in that last time when Jesus comes. But there are those in the world who will wail when they see him coming because they'll realize they have missed the opportunity to repent and trust Jesus Christ. And now they are facing the fierce judgment of God. There will be that wailing at the end time. But um, we who are believers, God has not destined us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we as his people, we can read the book of Revelation, and we can read it with, you know, it, there's some sobering things in the book of Revelation, but we can read it with great joy, um, knowing that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to establish his kingdom, a, a kingdom of righteousness, truth, and justice, and peace. Let's um, turn to... A theme or the key verse here is Revelation 11:15. So let's turn to that for a moment. It speaks here in verse uh, chapter 11 verse 15, the angel blowing his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is a, uh, a transferal of the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. Um, when you look at this world, when mankind sinned, when Adam sinned, there was a sense that mankind gave themselves over to the dominion and power of Satan. We see people, it says, Satan is the prince of the power of this world. And it says he is, um, you know, the people of this world are enslaved and blinded by Satan in so many ways. So many of the governments of this world, too, are influenced by, I believe, the sata satanic evil powers, spiritual powers, and the heavenly beings, and the, the heavenly places. But his time is coming to his end. He knows his time is short. And there's going to be that transferal where the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world will be transferred to the power and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his reign shall be forever and ever. 
but getting from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, it won't be an easy time. It speaks in the book of Revelation, as we'll read in the next few weeks. It's going to be a tumultuous time, great calamities and great judgments coming upon the face of the earth. And we'll read about that as we uh, look further into the, the book of Revelation. So we see John in uh, chapter 1. He was on the island of Patmos on the, uh, the Lord's Day. And um, he heard a voice. Here he is. He may have been, maybe he was facing some discouragement and loneliness here on that island all alone out there. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice like a trumpet, a loud trumpet behind him on the Lord's Day. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. And when he heard that voice like a trumpet, I, I don't know if he turned around slowly or if he turned around quickly and see, what is this voice that I hear? And the voice that he heard was the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he saw this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was an awesome sight that he saw. Um, the babe in Bethlehem is now the great God of glory in heaven, um, displaying his glory and power. And I was reading some things about, as we read the description of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Revelation chapter 1, he's wearing a robe, and the robe with a golden sash. And that can signify royalty. He has white hair, which can be signifying purity, holiness, and truth. We see also he has eyes like a flame of fire, piercing eyes. It says, you know, the eyes of God can look into our heart. He sees all. Nothing is beyond his sight. He has feet like bronze, which could speak of his authority. He has a voice like roaring waters that can speak of his power. He has out of his mouth a two-edged sword, which can speak of his true judgments. And verse seven, or the seventh point I have here is his face. It describes his face as a shining sun, bright as the shining sun. We know that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And I, I couldn't help but think when I was looking, uh, when I was reading this um, vision that John had of the Lord Jesus Christ, in other parts of scripture, it says that no man may look upon the face of God and live. Um, one time I was speaking at a funeral and I said that you know, to the people and one woman looked up to me like, huh? But it's true. You know, when um, Moses, when he was asked, asked him to look at the glory of God, God said to him, you cannot look at my face. You can see the back as I passed by when you were in the cleft of the rock, but no man may see my face and live. Um, in our sinful flesh, we cannot look at God's face. Now, I have to think here that John was given maybe a bit of a veil. And like when you can't look at the sun, when you look up at the sun, you're going to see some spots. You're going to do some real damage to your eyes. So I don't think he caught the full glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ in his face. But he saw enough there to give us a description of who he is in his great power and glory. Um, if we look at uh, Revelation verse 19... Uh, chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord Jesus gives a command to John. He says, Write there for the things that you have seen. And the things he has seen is he has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Write those things that are, we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3, 
He's going to be writing instructions, some reproof and correction to the churches, the seven churches, and write those things that are to take place after this, which are the judgments coming on this world and the coming of our Lord Jesus to establish his kingdom on earth. So we see that here. Um, and, and as I was thinking, as I was doing this study here, and we think of um, God and his glory and the revelation that he is giving to John here, how, how does John's, as the first question I had in verse um, in chapter 1 was, how does John react when he beholds Jesus standing before him in glory? What, what was his reaction? Jeff. Right. Right. And uh, I was thinking, too, there's many other examples. I just gave a couple of verses up there, the second question. But what other people came to mind when they came before the presence of God? It says, what other people had a similar reaction when in the presence of God's glory. Did anyone think about that much? On the road to Damascus. Yeah, what did, what did Paul do when he came before the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus? Fell at his feet, exactly. Any other uh, points of scripture that we can point to were, yes, Pastor Ty. Yes. Yeah, he, he says, woe is me, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord of hosts. And he, he sees, wow, this is, a woe is me when he saw the Lord, yes. And any other, um, maybe one more that we can think of. Yes. Right, yep, they had that reaction too. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there's many others, of course, in, uh, in scripture. Um, you know, I think of uh, uh, Ezekiel um, in, in chapter 1. He came before the glory of God, and he fell on his face when he was uh, before the Lord God, too. And uh, I, I just, one, uh, you may be questioning, and, uh, you know, this is Christmas time, and we think of the shepherds in the field, and uh, they were watching their flock, they were shepherding their flocks by night, and the angel of the Lord um, came by, and the angels were around them, and they were in great fear. And this is the glory of the Lord shone around them. Yes, it was the angels coming, but it was the glory of the Lord that shone around them. It's referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. And when they saw that, they too, they fell down in fear. But many times the reaction is from the Lord or from the angels is, fear not. I know what you're seeing is awesome and you're on your face, but I have a mission for you. I have something I want you to do. So fear not. Um, many times is the, the message that we have from the Lord. Um, how does a proper response to the glory of God invoke us to more meaningful worship? And I, I brought a verse up there, Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Anyone give any thought to that at all? Right, because he is a consuming fire. Um, we are to uh, bow, bow, bow down before him in reverence and offer him worship that's pleasing to him. And we don't rush rashly into the presence of God, but we come before him and offer that worship that would be um, pleasing to him. All right. 
when I, I gave this question, I thought maybe it was um, kind of a, um, a layup question, an easy question here, but uh, maybe a little bit more to it than I thought. Who or what do the seven stars and the seven lampstands seven lamp represent in verse 20? Who, is, who are the seven uh, lampstands? Yes, Cynthia? The seven lamps, the, the lampstands would be the seven churches, right? And then the, the seven stars would refer to yeah. the angels of the ambassadors and messengers. The, the angels, yeah. And you just said messengers and pastors because the, um, the word here in the Greek is actually messengers. And when you look in the book of Revelation and it uses the term messenger, we can see obviously it refers many, many times to angels. But here, he's talking about messengers going to the churches. And angels never really directly speak to the churches to instruct them. So being a messenger here, it may very well mean that God is sending his messengers to the churches to deliver that message to the seven churches in Asia Minor. So just an interesting uh, possibility there that instead of being the actual angels, it could be the messengers who would be the pastors and elders of the church. We go now to um, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we look here. This is a message that John is delivering to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And as I was looking at these um, messages that God gave him to bring to the churches that Jesus is uh, telling him to communicate, Jesus gives the churches, I, I see here, a balanced message. Um, and many times I see in Scripture a great balance, and I see it here. Um, Jesus many times says to the churches, I know your works, um, and you're doing well here. You know, you're, you're keeping the faith. You're doing some good things. Um, you know, it's almost like, you know, stay at it. Keep at those things. But on the other side, there's that reproof and correction to the churches, and he says, but this I have against you. And he has messages of correction. And as you look at the, the seven churches, we see the, the message to the churches. These are almost representative and indicative of churches that we have now, that we can have the same messages brought to the, the churches, all different types of churches that we have during this time and age. For, for example, the church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. We look around the world and we see many churches in other parts of the world, especially in the Sudan, Nigeria, China, North Korea. We see the persecuted church around the world, just like the church of Smyrna. The church of Philadelphia, that was the one church that um, the Lord Jesus commended. There was no real reproof or correction. He said they were really a healthy church. They had kept the word of God and they were faithful. And we would like to think that of ourselves, ourselves as our church, humbly coming before God and saying, Lord, help us to be faithful and true to your word, a faithful and, and a healthy church. The church in Sardis was a dead church. Um, but the interesting thing was being a dead church in Sardis, he says, there's still a few there in church in Sardis who have kept my word and they haven't gone astray. And I think of churches nowadays, um, when I was growing up, I grew up in a more a liberal church, and a lot of churches out there, maybe like the, the Methodist and Presbyterian church in the past, who were 
very strong in the faith. Many have gone by the wayside in their teachings. But there's still a few people in there who are keeping sound word. They're still faithful. They're born-again Christians. I don't know how they stay there at times, but I think there's still a few there. Strengthen what remains. If there's anything that remains, um, you know, I, I know it's a, a tough thing. So, and we look at the satanic attacks of the church, and we see that in these seven churches here. Many times, Satan attacks the churches through violent persecution. We saw that in the church of Smyrna. Um, he also attacks the church through deceptive teachings, of false teachers. And we, we see that even in our day and age. He attacks the, the churches through affluence and sensual pleasures and immorality. And once again, we see that in some of the churches here in Asia Minor. And we see the same thing in our, our present churches in, in many times. Um, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus reproves the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 for abandoning their first love. And the church at Laodicea in chapter 3 for being lukewarm. What steps can we take to reignite a stronger love for Christ? And, and I was thinking, maybe you came to Christ when you were a young person. Maybe you were five, six years old, and you've been hearing the message over and over and over again, and you're starting to get a little dull of hearing, and maybe you're, you're not as keen to the things of God as you once were. You, you're born again. You love God, but your love isn't still the same as it once was. Or maybe someone who came to Christ when they were in their 20s and 30s and they came out of a, a life of you know, deep, deep sin and God rescued them. They came to Christ at an age of 30 years old and there was, there was that great passion for the things of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we may be 45, 50, 60, 70 and maybe that passion isn't the same that it once was when we first came to Christ. Um, if that's the case, if someone came to you asking for advice, I just, I just don't have that love for Christ. I mean, I love him, but it's not like it once was. What would be your answer to that person if they came to you? How can I reignite that love for Christ in my life? Any, any ideas at all? Yes, Tammy. I said um, humbly obey the word of Christ and so that you can hear him and teach you his path. Exactly, you know, because the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And I think of that communication you're speaking about, too. You know, in, in a good marriage, you're going to have um, communication where you're speaking to a person and you're listening to that person. In the same way with God, when we um, hear his word, we're to listen carefully to what God has to say to us. But we're to speak to him, too. It's, it's not just a one-way communication, just like in a marriage. It has to go back and forth. And some of us men maybe not are, are great at communicating with our wives, something I need to work on. But um, no, I, I think that's, that's true. You know, that keeping that open line of communication, that heartfelt communication between us and, and the Lord is very important. And obedience. Shane. Right. Yep. Walk in the spirit that you may not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yes, Marcus. I think you say count your blessings. I mean, it's just there. You can, and I know we had a challenge not that long ago about just how many blessings we have had over our life. Like you, you can even go back to days and hours and just see the blessing of God 
throughout your life that's known to you, when you sit here and you, you just meditate on that, you can really reignite your, your, your passion about of all the things that you've done for you. Absolutely. And that spirit of grateful thanksgiving is very important in keeping that relationship vibrant and alive. Yes, Cuppy. I know when it happens to me, uh, I confess it to God and ask him for help. And he then let, lifts him and let him out and go, God. Right. You know, you know, bring me back. Help me to walk with you. Right. That, that's a humble request to God. And I want to reignite that passion for you and that love for you that uh, isn't as strong as it used to be. Very, very, very good. And I think also when, you, um, when we do these things we just spoke about, the obedience, reading, praying, I think that results in the emotions coming alive within us. I think we're mind, body, and spirit. And I think that results in the thanksgiving and the praise that we give to God in worship, which is all part of reigniting and keeping that love strong for, for Christ. And I, I, just one more thing real quick. Sharing Christ. I, I can't think of a, a little boy who has a father and he's bragging on his dad. Oh, my dad can do this. He's He's stronger than anyone out there. And, you know, we, we should brag on, on Christ, on God. Get out there when, you, when we're witnessing. You know, I know God. He's my creator. He's my redeemer. He's my friend. He's my guide. He's my help. He's the one whom I trust. So just bragging on God and um, sharing your faith with others. What is the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans that Jesus warns the church in Pergamum about. Did anyone dig into that a little bit? It takes a little digging to see what that might be. Um, any, any ideas on what that, um, that teaching might have been or that sin that they were involved in? Pastor Ty? Something to do with idolatrous practices and immorality. Right. Balak was a king, and, and Balaam was a prophet. And, um, you know, Balaam was instructed to curse the children of Israel. And he was prevented from doing so. But there came a time where Balaam came up with an idea. Okay, here's how we can get to the children of Israel. We'll introduce them to foreign women, the, the Moabites, I believe it was. And they became involved in immorality, and they were intermarrying with those who they were not supposed to marry. There was that uh, sexual immorality. And, and Nicolaitans, too, um, that was a teaching, too, that said that once you believe in your head and you sign your name on a dotted line, you can live your life however you want to. You're forgiven. Why, why don't we just eat, drink, and be merry? I, I've, I've said the prayer. I'm in the club. I can just sin, commit immorality, and do whatever I want to do and still be right with God. And we know from looking at, you know, John, you know, 1 John, that's not true of a real born-again Christian. Uh, that was a false teaching that was going on in, um, from the Nicolaitans. And Jesus was saying, get away from that, that that's wrong. I, I can't help but think that Jesus cares about the purity of his church. I remember one time when I was a young man in my 20s, I was a new believer, and the pastor was preaching on uh, sexual immorality. And he went before the congregation one time. He said, 
if you're in the possession of any pornography, throw it away. And he said, if you're involved in an illicit, immoral affair, break it off. And you could have heard a pin drop in the congregation during that time. But you know what? I'm thankful he gave a powerful message on that because Jesus wants a pure and a holy church. And there's no room for these things in the church of God, in his church. There's the call to um, holiness and purity. Um, there's warnings against false teachings. And there's the, um, the call for us to have a genuine love and devotion for our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the message here, what does the Lord instruct them to do in verse 16, those who are going astray? What was the simple message? Diane? Quickly, what is done. Right. Therefore, repent, you know, with exclamation mark, you know. Good. All right, once more, we'll have to uh, move it along here. Just some, um, was there a term you saw used repeatedly in chapters two and three? Brenda? Overcome. Overcomer, yeah. For he who overcomes, who conquers. And uh, there's many promises. We won't get into all the different promises, but... One of the promises, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We will not be thrown into the lake of fire. We have obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we overcome? Um, how do we become an overcomer, a conqueror? What does the, <coughs> excuse me, what does the Bible refer to there? I gave a couple of verses, 1 John 5, 4, and 5. I don't know if anyone had an opportunity to look at that verse. Well, it says here, um, whoever is born of God, we conquer and overcome by our faith. Um, the second thing here was in Romans 8.37. It says, um, we overcome Satan by, um, no, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're a conqueror through, through Christ who loves us. And we are conquerors um, through the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I can't help but think that God has given us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ, but we need to exercise that victory by faith each and every day. We were looking at uh, James and Peter, and um, you know, he exhorts, Peter and James exhort people to resist Satan firm in your faith. And what does James say that Satan will do when you resist him firm in your faith? Jeff, he'll flee from you. One time, someone was given an example saying, Satan here is looking for someone to devour. But if he looks at someone who is attending regular prayer meetings, who is reading their Bible on a regular basis, going to their private prayer closets, a person who is sharing their faith, a person who is obedient to God's will, Satan will look at that person and say, well, George is, he, he's close to the Lord. I'm going to go elsewhere and look to see whom else I can devour. I think there's that sense where we're strong in our faith and abiding in Christ, that there is a sense that Satan may not leave us completely, but I think many times he will flee and look for maybe more fertile ground, those people who are on the fringes maybe and, and not really grounded in, in God and his word. Okay, we go here. Now we go from uh, chapter 2 and 3 to verses 4 and 5. We go to the throne room 
of God. It says, John was taken up and a door was opened up in heaven and he caught a glimpse of the throne room of heaven. And uh, we look here at the first question. John is taken up in the spirit before the throne of God in chapter 4. What descriptions of this scene stand out in John's experience? Anything kind of jump out at you when he was up there in the throne room of heaven, getting a glimpse of that heavenly worship? Brenda? Uh, he was consumed by lightning and thunderings and voices. And then the seven lamps of the um, lamps of burning flowed from him, the seven spirits of God. Yeah, I think John is doing his best to describe this awesome scene. He's almost like overcome trying to explain all these things he's seen in the throne room of heaven. Um, he sees all the angels. He sees the four angels that have the eyes all around and the six wings. Um, he sees the elders in verse 10 and 11 casting their crowns before the throne. And the one who is seated on the throne, he sees... God and, and great power and glory seated on his throne and he is almost overcome by this uh, revelation. In Revelation 4.8 what attribute of God is repeated by the angels and why is this attribute so important? And it's repeated three times. What were the three words that he uses? Say it out loud. God Almighty. Now, he could have said, good, good, good is the Lord God Almighty. Great, great, great is the Lord God Almighty. Love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. Why do you think the term here, holy, holy, holy? And it's not the first time. It's also when um, Isaiah chapter 6, where um, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the earth is filled with his glory. Why is this term holy used instead of another term for God. Any thoughts on that? Yes, copy. When I hear the word holy, I automatically think of God. If I hear the word great, well, I could think of a lot of things. You know, like that's a great new car you got, or that's a great new house you got. But right. holy is God. Yes, holy. It's, um, it's unique to God, isn't it? Because no one is like God. He's the creator of all that there is. Never a beginning, never has an end. He's perfect in all his ways. Um, someone wrote that it's the summation of all his moral excellencies and attributes when you speak of his holiness. And his holiness is manifested in his works of creation. No one can create like God does. We can try to replicate things in our art, but it all comes from the source who is God. There's no one like God. It's manifested in his law, his perfect law, and how we're to live so that we can have harmony and peace with one another, love for one another, and love for God. And it's manifested his holiness in the cross and his love. No greater love is it than a man give his life for another, and Christ gave his love for us. His holiness is manifested in a love like his that is like no other. And, and we see it in the cross. We see it in Christ. Um, there was no one like God. He alone is holy. 
Revelation chapter 5, a scroll appears with seven seals. Who is the only one counted worthy to open or look into the scroll? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why, he, why is he the one that is the only one who is counted worthy to open this scroll? He's the redeemer. Yeah, he redeemed people unto himself. I, I can't. I was looking back to a verse in uh, Hebrews. He has an indestructible life. He is the only one counted worthy as the holy Son of God to open up the scroll. The scroll is interesting when you look at the scroll. The scroll. Many people see this as being what is the scroll? It has seven seals on it. And back in those days, the seals, the scroll was like a deed, like a will or a deed. And many times in the Roman world, there were seven seals on the deed. And you had to open up each um, of these seals to open up the scroll. But what's in the scroll? Well, there are some commentators, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, even Joel Arnold, when he was teaching um, Revelation a couple years ago, he was talking about that as being possibly the title deed of the earth, where Satan was given control over the earth in some respects. He's on a short leash. God allows him only to go so far. But in this day and age, Jesus, in, in this book of Revelation, is showing Jesus opening up the scroll. And when each seal is open, showing forth the seven judgments of God, the scroll is open, and Jesus is given the title deed to the earth, being master, lord, the ruler of all. And I thought that was interesting to think of that as being what's inside that scroll. And Jesus is the only one who is worthy to open that scroll. And when you look at the scroll in chapter 6, you see many things here that are opened up. We see that the first um, seal, it talks about, I believe it's talking about the, the Antichrist and his coming. And he comes first, it says he comes with, the rider comes with a bow, but no arrow. And, and that can signify that when the Antichrist and the governments of the Antichrist come on the scene, they're offering peace, peace. Maybe that he's going to offer a peace agreement to Israel and between them and the Palestinians. Maybe peace between Russia and Ukraine, and he's offering great peace, and people are coming to believe in the Antichrist because he's bringing promises of peace. But eventually there comes that rebellion, and he wants to take a strong hand, and people may be coming against his government and him coming against other governments, and eventually it leads to a world war. And it talks about that war bringing destruction to the earth. Um, and it talks about the results of those wars in the first few seals, the first three seals. It results in uh, famine. It results in um, just many different things. When, when you think of, um, I think it was in the, the third or fourth seal, it talks about the third seal. It talks about people, the results of the war, just superinflation coming upon the earth. It's going to take one day's salary to buy like a loaf of bread. If you're earning $1,000 a week, it's gonna take $200 to buy a loaf of bread because the hyperinflation is the result of the war. It's so great are, are the, the wars during that time. Then it talks in the fourth seal 
I believe it was, and says that those, those are crying upon on, on the fifth seal, they're crying out the saints who have been martyred during the time of the tribulation. How long, O oh God, before you take vengeance on those who have shed our blood? God does hear that prayer, and he will take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And there also comes a time in the, uh, the seal, as we get to the sixth seal, and it talks about earthquakes, and it talks about terrible things coming upon the face of the earth, leading to that great tribulation. The sun turning to being black, um, the moon turning to blood red. This could possibly be the earthquakes with the volcanoes spewing up dust into the air. Um, and one commentator said it shows the, the sky being rolled up. Uh, one commentator saying, when you look at a nuclear bomb, it almost looks like a scroll when you see the mushroom cloud. Maybe there's some nuclear warfare going on in these end times. Um, and what is the reaction to the people when they see all these things coming upon the earth with these first six seals leading to the Great Tribulation? What was the reaction of the people? That was at the end of uh, chapter six. Jeff. They're hiding in caves and crying out uh, for the rocks and mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath. Right. Instead of crying out to God in repentance, they're crying out to maybe Mother Nature and saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and of God. It's because their wrath is coming upon us and who can stand? But when we go to chapter 7, we see here there's 144,000 who are sealed. These are Jewish believers who are sealed in that end time. And God is calling a people unto himself. Even during the time of tribulation, I believe there's a time where we as believers, we'll get into this more next time, you know, the rapture, we'll talk about the timing of that, but I believe there's many indications that we will not be here during the great tribulation. We'll, we'll discuss that more. But even during the time of tribulation, for those who are left behind, I believe that there are those who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, including these 144,000 believers. So I close here at the end of uh, chapter 7. Um, actually, verse 10, leading to worship up in heaven. They are crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sound instruction from your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your message to the churches. I pray that you would help us in our church to turn away from false teachings, to be genuine in our love and devotion to you, and to be turning away from immorality and, and being pure in a holy church. And I pray, O oh Lord, as we go to worship this morning, that we would offer you fervent, reverent, with songs of praise that would be well-pleasing in your sight. Thank you, Lord, for our time together this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.